Good morning. So today, I'm going to give Rob a title right off of the bat. You got a pen and paper? Oh, you'll have the recording. Yeah. Uh, uh, religious authority and spiritual gaslighting. So, um, I just got back from, I flew in on Tuesday night from Minneapolis. And uh, that was my first time being in a city covered in snow. I've never experienced that before in my 40 years. Um, and uh, um, it got less less miserable after the first 24 hours. But the first, like, my friend picked me up and we went to a frozen lake. And I'm like, this is awful. You know, it was kind of like, isn't this cool? I'm like, no. And it's like, um, and like, people build little houses so they can hang out all winter in like a little house and fish through ice. Um, anyway, so I got off and, and, I, and I took the bus here and I walked from Dean Keaton to, to, um, to, to, and before I even came to the house, it was like 8 p.m. or something, and I go to Black's Barbecue because little known fact, Black's Barbecue has some of the best dessert on this block. And they have, they make their own ice cream, and they have a pecan cobbler, which is all crunchy and like, and like, and like gooey, and it's, and it's warm. So I get the pecan cobbler, and I, and I used to tell people that Black's Barbecue has smoked peach cobbler, where they take the peaches and they put it in the smoker with the meat, and then they make a cobbler out of the peaches. And while I was, and I've told millions of people, not millions, I don't know, <laughs> but I've told lots of people, everybody that I talk about, Black's uh, uh, peach cobbler. I um, I uh, say that it's smoked and that they barbecue the peaches. And then I'm in there, and I look at the menu, and I'm like, it doesn't say smoked. And then I look at the printed menu, I'm like, it doesn't say smoked. And then I go, did I make that up? Um, and I'm like, maybe I was just like eating the cobbler. And I smelled the smoke, and I'm like, these peaches are smoked, and it became like a fact in my mind that I told a bunch of other people with, and infected them with my nonsense, and they may have spread that to other people as well. And I got to feel in real time that kind of embarrassment of finding out that I was full of shit, you know? That having to do that kind of trajectory change, where you're just like, I'm wrong. And that kind of like delayed slow motion kind of onboarding of realizing that you're wrong, you know. And that very emotion, I think, is what's at play when there's a lot of um, you know, on the gentle level misleading, and on the and on the and on the extreme level abuse in in religion. You know, you have a person that's in authority that um, wants to keep your faith in them alive, and they can't do that shift of realizing that they were wrong about something. It's just, you know, the longer you go around wearing special outfits and sitting on high seats, the harder it gets, actually, to, um, to admit to anyone, to be visibly wrong about stuff. And what usually happens is something like, well, I'll make a mental note, but I'm not going to make that public to anyone. 
no need to, right? No need to cause any alarm. I don't need to call everybody and tell them I was wrong about the peaches, you know? Um, and I get to have my transformation be very, very private, which is actually a privilege of a teacher. And when you're a student and you're going for practice discussion or dokusan with a teacher on a regular basis, you don't really get to have a lot of private transformations. You know, the idea is that everything that you're going through is kind of held up for the review of the authority figure. You know, so you're, so the teacher gets to have private transformations that don't embarrass them, you know, and then the student is always, all their transformations are kind of exposed. Um, and then the teacher that had the private transformation gets to use that as a point of reference to teach other people with. And that, and the, and the shortcoming of that is that there's an assumption in that, that, what I'm talking to you about is similar or even identical to what I experienced myself. You know, that all of your misinformation is as trivial as smoked peaches. You know, and, and you should be just as ready to let go of your held beliefs as I was to mine. You know, and the issue with that is that your held beliefs come from a completely different place than a teacher does or anyone else's does. You know, so. There's this um, tier, multi-tiered hierarchy of privilege, you know. And usually we go to the kind of the kind of poster child for privilege is the white male, the straight white male. You know, they're kind of like a catch-all for the top tier of privilege, you know. But there's also so many other ways that privilege is in effect in our lives. Um, definitely gender and gender identity, definitely um, sexual orientation, definitely um, uh, your um, economic, you know, upbringing, and the, and the time, and the time that you were raised, and what, the, and what the beliefs were at the time that you were raised, you know, and there's all these different things that, that create a, a multi-tiered hierarchy of privilege, you know. And for me to have my certain relationship to relinquishing my beliefs, it might have a completely different impact that grew up in a very, having, having to have a different relationship to their own beliefs. Yeah. Um, and what can happen is that a teacher can begin, and this isn't just teachers, this is like, you know, senior peers or even just confident peers. You know, you ever have a peer that is even junior to you, but they're more confident than you. So you feel like, you know, they're, they're the authority in the exchange, you know, and, and they can um, using themselves and their privileged perspective as, a, as their only point of reference, begin to talk you out of your hard won self-respect. You know, they're going through what you had to go through. Um. So I want to talk about this term gaslighting. Has anybody heard the term gaslighting before? It's kind of worked its way into popular um, uh, psychology, modern psychology or something like that, or modern uh, relational dynamics. Um, gaslighting comes from uh, a play, actually. Do you know that? There's a play called Gaslight, and there's two movie adaptations, one from 1940, which is a British, and one from 44, which is American. The one from 1944 had Ingrid Bergman in it. Is that that person's name? 
And she's good. She was. It's a little bit better than the English version. I like the detective in the English version, but I like Ingrid Bergman in the American version. Um, the English version is completely free on YouTube. The American version, you just see clips of it on YouTube. But I think you can rent it for like two ninety nine, which I would never spend on watching a movie that I want to watch. But I'll spend three dollars on Pecan Cobbler. But um, <laughs> smoked, smoked, yeah. <laughs> Recently unsmoked. <laughs> um, but the premise of this, of this play, Gaslight, is that there's this guy that um, had jewels hidden in a house, and he, moved, and, and he killed the person to get... This isn't a spoiler. This is like the first scene, you know? Um, he killed this lady to get her rubies, which is a very 19th century mystery plotline, you know, thriller plotline. Kills this lady to get her rubies, and then... Um, couldn't find them, comes back to the house 20 years later with his wife, and at night, he would leave his wife and go upstairs to look for the missing rubies. And so his wife would hear footsteps upstairs, and in an old house with gas lamps in it, when you would light the lamps upstairs, it would dim the lights downstairs because of the flow, it would affect the flow of gas, right? So she would hear footsteps and see the gas lights go down, and when he, and she would go like, What's going on? I hear footsteps and you hear the gas going down. And he, his response to having her snoop around is to convince her that none of that was happening and that she was going crazy. You know, So it's this textbook of somebody trying to protect themselves by convincing somebody that's challenging their life by, by telling them that they're, that they're losing their minds. You know, so, so this term gaslighting refers to usually a dynamic between two people where the other one is protecting their self-interest by making the other person question their sanity. You know? And uh, religion is really, really ripe for opportunities for this. Especially um, meditative religions, you know, and yogic religions, uh, yogic practices, because the whole underlying thing is that you're, gonna, you're freeing yourself of misconceptions. So you have the teacher there to help you free yourself of misconceptions by pointing out what all of your misconceptions are. What a fucking minefield, right? And this teacher, their merit is that they got there first to the organization, you know? And so, like in our lineage, the people that got there first were a lot of um, uh, middle-class white people, you know? And... And for a middle-class white person to say, you should relinquish your self-cherishing, is it doesn't have the same effect for people that are not, that didn't, that didn't grow up with that level of privilege, you know? And I'm going to talk about that a little bit, and I'm going to use Beyonce as an example. Um, now, if you're bold enough to push back, um, in an organization, then um, you might be regarded as a troublemaker, or if, or uh, if the teaching offends you and you and it's brought up. This happened very recently at, at, at one of the San Francisco centers. Um, a teacher was talking was using using this teaching story of uh, well, when I was nine or eight or whatever, I chased a little girl and I held her down and kissed her. And, uh, and, and it was this, and, it, and the point of the story was that, you know, sometimes you gotta just like 
seize the day or something like that. And there people are like, what the, what? That is not an okay story. And I, there's been about maybe, maybe 10 to 20 years of this teacher telling the story. And finally in 2020, or 2019, at the end of 2019, like his long students were like, we got to, we got to retire this story, dude, you know? And, and his response was kind of like, well, I'm sorry that you guys aren't, aren't ready to understand this. You know? This is San Francisco Zen Center. This isn't like something exotic and traditional. You know, this is the cutting edge of American Zen, right? Um, so to be told that you weren't ready for something, to be told that it's like beyond your comprehension at this juncture. Um, and then one of, the, one of the ways that gaslighting works is that you convince people that they need you. You know, you're going crazy and I'm your caretaker. You know, so you mix that kind of telling someone that they're crazy with a kind of loving support for them. You know, and spiritual traditions do this all the time. There's, um, if you go to a residential um, monastic kind of training environment, they'll alternate between the word training and the word community. You know, and they'll employ them at different times to give you a different kind of feeling about the place. You know, when they want to make it feel wholesome, they call it community. You know, but when push comes to shove, it's not really community. It's an institution that's training you for something. You know, so they'll tell you that you're welcome here and that we're here to support you and that you're falling short at meeting, meeting your obligations. You know, and the schedule can be designed to augment that. You know, you go to a place like Green Gulch, Tassajara, the schedule is just so that you're under duress all the time. You know, I used to say that life at Tassara, I could always use another layer of clothes and I could always use more food and I could always use more sleep for, you know, for years of my life. It was like that. You know, I was always wanted more food, but that's kind of true about me a lot of the time. Um, I could always go back to bed any time of the day, you know, 3, 3 p.m. I'm ready to go back to bed. You know, 1 p.m. I'm ready to go back to bed. Definitely when you hear the wake up bell at 3.50, you're ready to go back to bed. And so it creates this setup where you can barely do it. So you always feel kind of indentured to the hierarchy of the place. You always feel like you're not quite meeting what you need to be meeting, you know? And if you are trying to, um, and then the idea is that if you're having a hard time with that, you should talk to somebody about it. Talk to somebody that was able to do it because they were there long enough to move up in the hierarchy. So somebody that can barely do it has to confide in somebody that had you know, that had the situation that they were able to do it, that they're having a hard time, you know? So that's, the odds are already against you in that. And then, um, and, there, and it's used in different ways. In, in East Asian Buddhism, everything's much more communal. And in like Indo-Tibetan Himalayan Buddhism, everything's a little bit more individualized. A yogi and your meditation practice is something that you kind of do alone. So the t- tools that are used are different. And, and like, if you're doing a Tibetan or Indian practice, the tool that might be used is your karma. You know, this is bad for your karma or bad for your practice or bad for your development if you shirk any amount of it. In East Asian Buddhism, it's that you're letting the group down. That's the kind of mental way of, 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 of um, talking people out of their position. Yeah. I can't do this, I have to leave. And it's like... Um, 
this thing about how you're disappointing the whole, in that case, in that moment, it's a community again, because they need you. Um, and if you buy into the idea that it's a community and you want to transform it so that it's safe for you, then you're a troublemaker. Because you're trying to go about changing things. You know, and it's a tradition and it needs, and it needs to be protected. Traditions need to be protected. Yeah. Although the traditions have been morphing since they began. But um, it's kind of like that thing of like... Um, you know, how many Christian churches will talk, talk about the story of Jesus overturning the money changers table, you know, and if you went into a Christian church and overturned the money changers table, how would they respond to you? <laughs> you know, you know. Um, so it's, it's all, it's all finding good if it's like sealed up in history, you know, the kind of descent, you know, but it, but in real time, it's just called your resistance, you resist. Why are you resisting the schedule? You know, well, maybe you should look at your resistance. You know, and you can't tell the organization that you're doing this to me. Yeah. And you can't tell the teacher that you're doing this to me. They're in a. They're in that that mode that cannot be challenged, really. You know, and all of their adjustments happen in private, so that you are always seeing the finished package. So a lot of things can gaslight us. Um, our understanding of the teachings themselves, you could read a text, you know, and it could tell you to sit full lotus, boom, right off the bat. You know, your relationship to that, you know. Um, being shamed by words on paper for your physical abilities, you know. And then um, cultural norms of the place, the cultural feeling of an institution or a temple, and uh, people and the, and, and the schedule and work set up. You know, when I became the head cook at Green Gulch, it was like, and let us know how we can support you. Let us know if there's anything you need. And then after, you know, two months of working 14 hour days, I'm like, can somebody cook breakfast? My breakfast cook just called and they go, you're the Tenzo. You know, it's like, wah, wah. that was all, that was all a hoax. The, can we support you thing? You know, and then I, when I step back from that position, I feel like I really let them down. You know, you can give years and hours and feel like you've, you've disappointed, you know, mommy and daddy, really. Yeah. And it's not like a deliberate manipulation. You know, it's, it's just like protecting the, held, the currently held view because of that, because of that difficulty making that leap from right, right to mistaken. You know, it's so much easier to keep things uh, as they go, like, like dysfunctional, when dysfunctional is homeostasis, then everything else is a threat. Like when, if you quit drinking or quit smoking or something like that, the, the toxicity is your homeostasis. So your body's trying to actually return to toxicity rather than become healthy the way you're trying to implement it. You know? Yeah. So it's kind of an old fashioned way of protecting your image that I think a lot of people are starting to see through, hopefully. You know, uh, I think it would be a good sign to, to have a teacher that readily changes their mind, you know, publicly. And if you call them on something, consider it and listen to you, you know, like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe it's a creepy story that 
so-and-so held, chased the little girl and held her down and kissed her. And, then said, and she seemed to like it. And it's like, we don't, we don't want to hear that. You know, that's not a teaching story. Yeah. And um, it's interesting how time spent in the community can slowly make these positions arise. Um, because it's one thing to do the kind of ethnocentric thing of being like, and I, and I kind of get it. I kind of like, you know, there's this argument in Thailand about, about full ordination for women. And there's this argument that like, you're putting your kind of Western feminist ideals on Thailand. By saying that, by saying that full ordination for women is is a good thing. We don't want that, you know. And there's even nuns that are like, I don't want that, um, because in Thailand there's there's a struggle for for the full bikuni ordination, full vows for women, you know. And um, and so it's easy to say, well, it's another. It's grew up with a, people who grew up in a completely different cultural context. But there are people that um, kind of converted to that worldview from a very Kind of radical, liberal, like like you know equality focused worldview, and if you spend an amount of time in a Buddhist community, um, being subject to these subtle impositions on your on your beliefs, you can end up there, you know, and I and you can see it happen. I um, rode in a car for eight hours with the abbot of a Thai forest monastery who. You know, was born in like the mid '40s or late '40s. Grew up in England. You know, went backpacking across Asia. And you know, this is a story of all of our, of all of the like American founders of all of the temples. You know, it's like I was a rich kid that did acid and went to Asia. You know, and like I kind of met my teacher and got enlightened in my semester abroad, and I was the first one back. So now you have to listen to me for fifty years. <laughs> you know, um, and. Uh, and he was like, you know, this like hippie anarchist dude. And now, fast forward to like 2008, 2009, he's, you know, co-signing a document like blocking full ordination for women. You know, like how did that happen? How did that shift? I would assume, and this is an assumption, I would assume that if you would have talked to that person in 1972 and said, are you ever going to sign a document that says women can't get fully ordained? He's like, no, man. You know, I, I highly doubt that that would ever happen. You know, but incubating in that, in that culture, it can, it can transform, you know. And I uh, used to live at a Chinese monastery very recently. And the Chinese monastery that I lived at was run by, this is in Northern California. It was run by nuns. Nuns did everything. And there were maybe 25 monks and maybe like 70 nuns. And we, they would play recordings of the founder talking about, you know, because of menstruation, women can't go to the pure land and stuff like that. And they're impure bodies and stuff like that. And I'm like, how are we still listening to this? You know, and over time, you'd meet, I'd meet like, you know, 25-year-olds from Canada that are like, no, no, you're misunderstanding it. Like, what it really means and trying to start kind of, you know, like, like it sounds sexist, but here's why it's not, you know, because the because the primary goal is to preserve the infallibility so that you can have something to friggin trust for once you know so that so you can relax that anxiety of not knowing what to believe in you know so give me something old to believe in you know 
um, so that I know what my life is. Because a lot of us, um, if you aren't, well, no matter who you are in this country, something's been taken from you, you know? Um, and, and that sounds, you know, you could say like, well, what's taken from the Koch brothers or something like that, but some kind of connection to, to any kind, a lot of cultural traditions has been impacted by being here, whether you're indigenous or, or, or settler or immigrant, like it's your, your connection to your personal ethnic history has been diminished or changed or sacrificed in some way, you know? Um, and so I think there's a little, I think I feel a little bit of American anxiety of like, what is, what, what are my traditions? Like, who am I? What is going on here? You know, because this is, you know, we're on the Tonkawa land. Um, and people, uh, largely think of the Tonkawa tribe as being from Oklahoma, but they were forced to move to Oklahoma, but they're from Austin. Austin is Tonkawa land. And there were, in the 17th century, about 1,600 to 2,000. And then by the start of the Civil War, you had, I think, uh, 300 or something like that. And then by the end of the Civil War, I think you had 35. And they were forced to relocate to Oklahoma. Um, there was a massacre between pro-Union and pro-Confederate tribes. Because white people had them fighting their wars for them. Um, and so there's uh, the Texan Tonkawas, the, the language is extinct, you know, and we're all here and we're Texans or whatever. Well, I don't know. I, know. I don't say that about myself because I'm not really from here. But, um, you know, what is our connection to our personal history? You know, so that, so that little deficit can cause a little bit of, can cause some anxiety in trying to replace that and knowing what, who you are, you know. And in that knowing who we are, I've seen a lot of people in like kind of converting to yogic traditions completely take on all uh, some things that are not inherently part of the tradition, but are cultural accretions that are that are born and bred in patriarchy or feudalism. You know, if you've ever been to a big monastery and you go in for dokusan, this is like, oh, this is an East Asian intimidation ritual. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's like you go in and the teacher's sitting there and there's a candle and you come in and you bow to them and they are ignoring you. Or not, not always, but in my experience in, um, with a handful of teachers, both, both American teachers and teachers from Japan, there's this kind of stoic ignoring you as you, as you make your prostrations and come up. And that's the form. And I did it. When I first got trained, when I first became a teacher, I would see people and I would just sit there, kind of hold my gaze, because that's Zen, right? And it's like, but what effect does that have on everybody's different situation, you know? So if you grew up and you are on the, you know, you, you're going to inherit some estate someday and you're on the Oxford rowing team or whatever, and you go to a monastery and someone tells you to relinquish your self-clinging, that has a very different impact than if you grow up in public housing or something like that, and it was like this, like struggle, you know, to just like feel safe, you know, and you're struggling to feel safe, and then you're in a candlelit room with someone with a bald white person in, in, a, in an ancient outfit, 
you know, um, telling you to relinquish your self-clinging and challenging your perception and views on things. It's very problematic, actually. You know, and I think it's important for us to begin holding teachers accountable for the ways that they speak to emotional situations that they do not have experience with. Yeah. And one example, I promised Beyonce. Um, I didn't promise Beyonce, I was not like, I promise you. But no, I promised that I would talk about Beyonce. <laughs> um, there's essentially, this is, a, this is a thing that I look to, an example that I like. Of um, so apparently I'm not I'm not up for I moved to Tulsa in 2003 so m- culture ended for me there I don't know anything new you know which actually was a fine time to get unplugged from, <laughs> from music I'm I'm okay not knowing who Halsey is or whatever but um but uh, um but Beyonce and Ed Sheeran. Uh, did a song together and they would perform it live and Beyonce would dress like Beyonce and Ed Sheeran would dress like Ed Sheeran, which looks like he just got off the couch, (laughs) you know, and Beyonce would look fabulous and have this like pink thing that probably costs $3,000 at least or whatever. And then Ed Sheeran would come out with like, you know, a long undershirt with like a collared short sleeve collar shirt over it and like his jeans and like floppy hair. And, um, one person that I love and follow on, on um, social media is uh, uh, Sean Fay. I recommend Sean Fay. But Sean Fay says uh, Ed Sheeran is a 27 year old man, and that he's allowed to dress like this next to Beyonce makes my piss boil <laughs> or boils my piss. <laughs> like and um, and then there are all of these comments in response. Of people saying, like, I think Ed should wear whatever makes him comfortable. Nobody told Beyonce that she had to dress like that. You know, it's her decision. She likes dressing like that or something like that. Um, what about Ed Sheeran's freedom to, you know, he should be, shouldn't Beyonce be as comfortable? But there's, you know, and it's mostly people that don't look like Beyonce saying that she should be able to dress how she wants. You know, because Beyonce knows... And if you look like Beyonce, you know that you actually can't dress how you want. You know, that would have been a short-lived stardom if Beyonce would have dressed like Ed Sheeran all of her, all of her career. You know, you, you, there's a whole experience that people with privilege don't know about that you have to meticulously think of what you're going to wear, how you're going to talk, what your posture is going to be at your new job, how to hold yourself, you know, what to play up and what to play down. For your survival, you're micromanaging it all the time. And it creates a kind of hypervigilance. You know, and it's exhausting. Um, and uh, it's actually not true that Beyonce could wear whatever she wants. You know, Ed Sheeran gets to wear whatever he wants. You know, and so I think about that in the dynamics between teachers and students. You know, what presumption is there? that you're imputing your experience, well, that teachers are imputing their experience onto other people, you know? Might say something like, well, you should go to Tassajara. You know, do you know the financial and, and the, the, the impact that it has on your life to go live in the woods for 90 days? You know, but people like us, like me, we have no connection to that. I've never, you know, and not that I'm, 
I have a kind of poor, poor, poor Peter Pan, like, like no responsibility kind of privilege. It's different than a wealth privilege, but it's a certain kind of wealth in that I have no obligations, really. You know, so I could, I could obnoxiously tell somebody with children or a mortgage that they should go do retreats or something like that. You know, and I used to, and I'm, and I'm totally guilty of doing that, you know, in my early days. Or you should quit your job, you know. Totally irresponsible, because I have no idea. You know, I moved to a monastery when I was 21. So there's a whole relationship to things that I don't get. You know, and it's really important for teachers to know what they don't get. Um, and then, so, a really egregious example of this. Is it, does it add to the story, or does it unnecessary? I don't think it adds to the story. I think I made my point. I was going to talk about a specific example with a Rinpoche and the way the community responded to it and stuff. I'll, I'll be brief because it, it, does, it, it does it makes it real because otherwise I'm talking in abstractions, right? But I used to work uh, earlier in 2019, and I have a relationship with this organization called FPMT, which is Foundation for the Preservation Mahayana Tradition. It's a Tibetan Buddhist organization, and they have very good curriculums. Tibetans have really good curriculums. If you want to learn Buddhism, know that you're learning Tibetan Buddhism, but but do they have good curriculums? Um, and if you share something that you learned in Tibetan Buddhism and you go talk to a Theravadan or a Zen person, they'll be like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. That sounds made up. You know? Because Tibetan Buddhism is very, very syncretic. Uh, it has a lot of non-Buddhist elements in it from um, the Himalayan regions and a lot of... Uh, Kashmirian or Risen Shaivism and Tantra and stuff like that that has non-Buddhist origins. Don't tell them that. But um, and uh, all of this has non-Buddhist origins. You think any? You know, mostly mostly we're doing kind of American Zen centers are like kind of a Danton Confucian union. <laughs> um, but, um, so this, this teacher, Daggery Rinpoche, um, a bunch of people came forward. Um, I think anywhere from three to five women, mostly nuns, mostly Westerners, uh, said that, and he even got arrested on a plane for, for, uh, sexual assault. And, um, and when this came forward, and he was having, finally when he had a trial, when he had a court case, then the organization had to acknowledge it, you know? And, um, and there was a lot of stuff like, we're looking into these allegations, you know, um, we'll keep you posted, you know, our sympathies with, with this misfortune. And it's kind of un, unclear who the sympathies are for, you know? It's like, we're all going through this difficult thing. And it's like, what do you mean that our teacher was, did sexual assault or that our teacher's being accused of sexual assault. And that's the difficult thing, you know? And, um, it's interesting. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if you went into your pantry and there was like a little hole in the bottom of your bag of rice and there's like my mouse shit all around. And you're kind of like, I wonder what happened. (laughs) 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 You know, it's, must be that kid from next door, you know, or something. Like, what could have caused this? And it's like, I wonder why these five women said that our teacher abused them. It's like, because he fucking did it, you know? Um, have you met a man? Yeah. Um, 
But, um, so, uh, while they're trying to figure this out, they, the head of the organization, Lama Zopa, um, he writes a letter of advice to the students of Degu Rinpoche, and it's about what a holy being he is, you know? And there's a lot of language just like citing like, Degu Rinpoche came to me in Bodh Gaya and told me about this dream that he had where he went to the Pure Land and, and blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, wow, he's definitely a holy being. So when a holy being, and so the, the, the impact was, um, and then and then he did a second letter where he revised it and like got way worse. He's like, I may have offended you before. Let me let me clarify what I'm saying. It was like, oh good, oh no, you know. Um, and it got way worse. And it's all on the FPMT webpage. You can look. They have it posted. Yeah, you know, there's one letter that's saying our sympathies to anybody that was affected by this, and then there's this awful tone deaf advice from this from this guru, and then. And then on you see the, these threads on like Facebook and stuff because I follow this. This is like really I think this is equally important to learning the teachings if we're gonna be stewards of this, you know, just like writing the wrong of this history, you know, and and not being complicit in it. Um, is this an interesting topic? I feel it feels mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. It involves yeah. sex, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, is it, is it, does it deserve being called sex? You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, um, but, the, but, the, but the effect of, of what Lama Zopa's letter was, was kind of like, you're contaminating your mind by thinking negative thoughts about somebody. You know? Um... And uh, and I assure you that this is a holy being, and, and holy beings' actions—we don't know what they're doing, but they're all to benefit us, you know. And um, and in Zen, we don't have that kind of guru language, but we do have it for the group. We do have that self-sacrifice for the group. Um, uh, and I remember when I started working at Tassahara, Kosho said. Be careful with your work. You have to learn to protect yourself. And he said, because if you show them that you'll work, they'll work you to death. You know? um, now, where was I going? And then it's interesting to see at the end of these letters from Lama Zopa about how Jagger Rinpoche is a holy being, they were um, translated, edited, trans transcribed by Western nuns. You know, so could you imagine being a 50-year-old woman from France, you know, like translating this stuff? And, the, and you've, been, you've been there for like 10, 20 years, and all of a sudden you have, you're, you're the person that's having to write this down. You know, you find yourself in that point in your life. And I wonder if at the, at the outset of that person's practice, they would have thought they would have been, you know, a proponent of that. Just like, just like the, the Thai abbot, the English abbot from the Thai monastery. You know, how that, how it morphs over time, you know. And I've seen it happen, you know, at San Francisco Zen Center. Someone goes into the director of the temple and says, uh, I want to leave. You know, and they go, where will you go? You know, it's already beginning. It's already beginning. Now, where will you go? Oh, I want to go to college. Were you going to take out loans? How can you? And they begin, they need bodies to do the work, you know. Um, and they, since it worked for them, they think it's good for you.
So there's a presumption there that it, you know, being a good student is good and being a bad student is bad. Yeah. And I had this whole thing where I was, I couldn't stay in one place too long. I used to get fidgety, you know, because I'm in my 20s. And I'm like, you know, I'd be at Tassar and I'd want to go to Japan. And then I'd be at Green Gulch and I'd want to go to Tassar. And I'd be at Tassar and I'd want to come here or something like that. You know, I moved, to, this is my sixth time living here. You know, I moved around a lot. And I went to Japan and I went to India and I lived at temples in New Mexico. I practiced in Washington State. And all of this was considered being a bad student. And now, from where I'm sitting, I'm like, what a gift I gave myself to have such varied experience practicing in the Rinzai tradition, practicing in the Sotra tradition, practicing with Tibetan teachers, uh, doing, uh, practicing at a yoga ashram, and having a really multi, a really varied experience practicing in urban centers and country centers and retreat centers and all of that. It made, it, it, I was, by responding to your own call, you're figuring out the medicine that you need, and you can't let somebody else impute their agenda on that, you know? Because usually it's not in your best interest, actually. They think it is, but no one knows your best interest. You're the only authority in the room, really. You know, and so to square yourself up on that on that confidence is a tall order. And it's interesting because I think, you know, in these in, in you know the Skyrama Zopa that that's trying to tell everybody that Degarupache is a holy being. I wonder what their conversations are like. Because that might be the public presentation. And then, you know, when they're behind doors, I wouldn't be surprised if he's like, what are you doing? Now I got to go deal with PR. You know? Because it's, it's, it's a business. Even if it's not monetized in the conventional business way, people are trying to maintain the life and the workings that they have established. You know? Um... There's a lot of stories I could talk about with the first-hand experience with specific teachers and specific organizations. Um, but I think I got the message that I wanted to get across. Um, and uh, I went... When, when do I stop? 8 to 11? What time is it? I don't know. No one's, no one's here to... 11.15. When do I stop, though? Uh, it, it could be now-ish. No, but since this was juicy, and since we've gone a little bit of a late start, and since uh, Mako's not here to tell me to stop, um, we can have a little Q&A if you want. Does anybody have any? Yeah. Everything that you're talking about seems applicable to any organization. Yes. Okay. And any relationship. Yeah. You know, it like, like it's, it, it's, you know, be, so the point of the whole story, the point of this whole talk, it, I'm not just like trying to gossip you know, about organizations. The point of the story is, like, be, especially in practice, look for, look for scenarios that are pointing you back at your own innate wisdom, you know, um, and are not trying to supplant any kind of view because your path is very, very much your own, you know, and, and your Dharma path might be, might include ancestral work and or tarot cards or like or like a or like the pasana and zen or yoga or jesus you know I, I, you know i grew up in that stuff and i can say all the things i want to say about the church but when i'm in a good catholic church with the statues with the blood and the thorns i love god 
You know, it just, it's emotional, you know, that, that affects my psyche more than the kind of, you know, Tibetan paintings that where the person, the first step is to get a protractor and a compass and stuff. And like, you know, that doesn't move me the way, oh, here's my heart and it's bleeding. You know, that's my good European, you know, emotional <laughs> response, you know. Um, and so to figure out how to, how to really make it your own and figure out what you need. And then in your own relationships, look for people kind of trying, there's, 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 a ne- there's a need to be open to other realities, you know, and, and, how to, and it's a fine line of how to be open to having your mind changed without, buying, without giving up your position because somebody's trying to get you to for their well-being. And we do it all the time. All of us do it all the time. We all gaslight all the time. And sometimes we do it with our parents. You know, I've definitely done it with my parents. I've like, I protect my parents from certain information, you know, um, because I think that I'm protecting them, but I'm protecting me from their response to it or something like that, you know? And uh, sometimes in, uh, yeah, in couples, couples do it a lot, you know? How could you even ask me that when you know you did the thing or something like that, you know? Um there's a lot of subtle ways that we're doing it all the time, you know, and but be on the lookout for people doing it to you. I'm not I'm not here to teach you how to not gaslight people, although I want you to not gaslight people. I'm also but the priority is to first be aware of when it's happening to you, especially where there's where there's where and, and be on the lookout for power differences. You know, they're there. They're everywhere. Power dynamics and people and a lot of times people with authority don't even realize it like me, like I I don't know the effect that all of this has on you, you know? So I'll say something very casual. Like, one time there was this kid, you've heard, some of you have heard me say this before, what is this? There's this kid that, um, <laughs> I'm playing with it all day. Um, there's this kid that lived at Green Gulch, and I said, well, you know, people like us, we either belong in monasteries or the military, or something like that. Like, I say these weird things about, and I'm, what I meant was like, boys that were spoiled, I don't know how to take care of themselves. You know, we need to, we need this kind of intermediate between, between living with your parents and adult life and the thing, and the things that can usher that in, that learning how to take care of yourself is like a monastery or the military. That was my kind of glib kind of thing. And he calls me up. I joined the Navy, like you said. (laughs) So it's a big responsibility. He smoked pot and got kicked out, luckily. It's a win-win. You have to leave the Navy and smoke pot. It's a double win. Yeah. Kind of on purpose, I think. Um, So, yeah, to be on the lookout for it um, in in all dynamics. And to read up on it. You can, can, like, signs of of a... Signs are with a narcissist. Signs are with a gaslighter. You know, you're interacting with one. You know? Anything else? Yeah. I um, remember when Angel Kyoto Williams came here. For me, it was a big moment to talk about things like uh, the reality. She talked. She talked about the reality of suffering and about how we can't sort of get away from that as a mm-hmm. teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Like we may want to point to letting go of everything, but yeah. we can't forget the reality of suffering and that. Uh, that was the foundation of the teach of Buddha's teaching. You know, mm-hmm. um, she was talking about like, well, you know, she's 
she said something like, well, you know, I wanted to talk to people about racism. And, then, and she would get the pushback of like, well, that's not Dharma. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, oh well, really? So what part of, yeah. where's Dharma then? Yeah. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? You yeah, know? yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. You know, how could you not face the suffering and not mm-hmm. be unwilling to face it? Totally. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I was talking to her and I was like saying, I, I get that sometimes the idea of like black lives matter. Sometimes I hear conservatives say, well, all lives matter. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, in, yeah, in the ultimate sense, all lives matter. But in the relative reality that we live in, people are, are suffering. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're real suffering. Mm-hmm. And that um, she was saying to me, you know, well, that idea that that person is expressing that all lives mm-hmm. are equally valid and somehow is, is denying that reality, that relative reality. And they're coming from their own relative, maybe a white privilege yeah, yeah. position, relative position, saying that, mm-hmm. sort of discounting all that yeah. suffering. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really quick way to to actually um, when we're being called out of ourselves, we look for the nearest thing to stop it, you know. Um, And so, like, let's say you see a you see a you see a commercial for something that, like a charitable organization that's like, donate to St. Jude's Hospital or something like that. And it's like, well, there's so many things that are in need. Why would I choose that thing? You know, and that kind of logic keeps you from doing anything about anything. You know what I mean? It's like, why would I, why help that one thing? You know, and that, and that, and if you look at the actual impact that that kind of thinking had, it only got you to divest from that request in that moment. That's the only purpose that it served, you know? And um, there's this uh, kind of bliss washing that happens in modern, uh, uh, modern uh, Caucasian spirituality, um, uh, which isn't, isn't so interested in healing, you know? Um, and, and, uh, you see, like, hashtags, like, uh, good vibes only, or something like that, or shirts that say that, follow your bliss, good vibes only. What a crock of shit, you know? Um, <laughs> like, like, the way out is in, you know, and through, and, um, there's something else I want to say about good vibes only, and that, when the more people put forth tr- the transcendent aspect of a practice, the more they're making you feel nuts for having a hard time. You know, and making you feel like your hard time isn't welcome. You know, we got a whole society of people that think they're doing yoga for Christ's sakes. <laughs> and they're like, I'm not listening to the clouds on a sunny day. You know? And it's like, yoga is like, crawling into the middle of a cloud. You know? Real yoga. Yeah. And, and, and working with the actual felt experience of having this life. And, and not um, putting good vibes on a tear above, above um, meeting your wounds. You know, meeting the world's wounds. No bad days.
Except for all the bad days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's important, and that can get used, you know, this kind of thing of like, well, the way out is in. Every, we, we are so skillful in bullshit. Because, <laughs> the, the, you know, so you could take what I just said, this whole good vibes only is a crappy shit thing. And then you can take that and use that to kind of posit or, or support this kind of like work will set you free, you know, um, kind of thing. So we, 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 you know, we're always going back and forth on this kind of binary to, to just support kind of what seems like our immediate aims, you know, what seems like our immediate benefit. So, um, so like... Um, Remember, Kosho used to say this thing, which I've repeated as if it was a good teaching. And sometimes it is a good teaching, and sometimes it's enabling, you know, enabling negative, like wrong practice. But there was somebody that at uh, Tassara that felt like they were kind of being harassed, or felt like they had difficult interpersonal dynamics with some folks. And they went to Kosho and told him about it, and Kosho said, Well, when you applied, did you tick the box that said full treatment? Saying that, like, Having a hard time here is part of what happens here, you know, which is true, you know, but then you see how that creates this window for, for enabling um, abusive behavior in folks or, or an oppressive schedule, you know, or in uh, uh, an complete ignorance of what healing actually is. You know. Or not, not addressing the healing that needs to happen. We don't talk about healing. You know? And I think it's the first... I think that's, you know, in the Lojong, when they say practice the preliminaries, you know, I think the modern way to, to, to practice the preliminaries is look at what we need to feel safe and start, manip start not manipulating, but start arranging things so that we can start to feel a little bit safe. You know, because the yoga... Of bliss isn't isn't coming to a body full of shadows, you know, unseen, unmet. Yeah. All right, how's that for an ending? Okay, thank you so much. <laughs>